all those things that are feminine coded, I would do a lot of. Um, and, you know, studying gender and studying masculinity, I really started to discover it. Um, and it was when I left uh, my undergraduate, I started working for a magazine called Young Vagabond. Um, and they were running workshops in high schools talking about the construction of masculinity with young men. And that was where I developed a really strong passion for um, working with young people to discuss gender, to, to you know, empower them to understand things before I understood it um, so that they don't have to be 21, go to university and discover something integral about themselves. That was Saul Zavaji, who's the head of advocacy at the Venezuelan Australian Democratic Council and a campaign and youth advocacy officer at Plan International Australia. Now, I met Saul in Melbourne early this year and absolutely loved his passion for human rights and youth empowerment, particularly through his work at Plan. Saul holds a Master of International Relations specialising in gender and radicalisation theory from Monash University. However, his path to where he is today wasn't so straightforward as we talked through in this conversation. Um, Saul is one of the most interesting um, guests I've had on this show. And before I get into that, though, I do want to ask... Um, that you guys please leave a review for this podcast from whatever app you use. It just makes it a lot more visible um, to other listeners who might not have heard about us. But also, give us any feedback if you're liking what you're hearing or if you're not. Cool. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Saul. I really appreciate um, you coming on. Of course. Thank you. So why don't we just start off by giving a bit of a, a description, a bit of an idea of the sort of work that you do today. Sure. So right now I'm, I'm the community organizer and youth activist uh, coordinator for Plan International. Uh, essentially what I do is that I manage a group of uh, youth activists that are, they're all young women between the ages of 16 and 25. And I, yeah. I support them. I get behind them and, and, and get, give them the tools essentially uh, and our connections and networks to leverage their ideas and, and get their ideas to actually sort of come to be. Uh, and I also handle the community. So what I do is I, other people who want to do more than just donate money or sign petitions, I connect them with other people who want to do more as well and sort of yeah get them to work together and organize them so that, you know, they can help us out and we can help them out. For sure. Yeah. Um, so how, just, sorry, just looking back on, you know, your childhood and the sort of experiences that have built up to where you are today. Um, if we go right back to the very start, um, you know, why don't you just talk about where you grew up and what your childhood environment was like? Sure. So I, I was born in 1990, but in Caracas, Venezuela. So yeah. Venezuela is a really, really um, entirely different uh, social context to what Australia is. Um, and my parents moved to Australia in 1992. So I, I kind of, uh, I grew up in Sydney and I didn't speak English at all until I was about four. I didn't speak Spanish either until I was about four. So I kind of had, I was a really, really quiet, um, well-behaved sort of young boy, but I didn't speak. Yeah. And then I sort of eventually ended up speaking both languages at once. <laughs> yeah, and how do you think that sort of um, impacted you? Do you think there was, there was much of an impact for you being able to, I guess, listen more than um, you expressed from a young age? Yeah, definitely. Um, and de- I definitely found it that I could only, uh, express myself with family. Um, they understood mm. the sort of made up Spanglish words that I had. 
Um, <laughs> but I think more more than anything, the the one sort of current in my life is that I've always felt like an outsider. Um, and I've yeah. always felt like I belong to a place that is not here, um, which mm. I, I, it's always been that way. Even, even a guy working in a feminist organization like, um, Plan is an yeah. is, is, it's definitely an outsider position. For sure. For sure. And did you have that set of experience as well? Um, you know, as you went through high school, uh, what was, what was it like for you there? Um, do you notice yourself being, you know, I guess entirely creative or were you more um, still quite laid back and um, a bit shy in that regard? High school was an interesting time because uh, like through primary school, for instance, I went to five different primary schools and I kept swapping because I was bullied. So by the time I got okay. to high school, my thing was like, <clears throat> I'm going to reject everyone before they can reject me. And I, I became yeah. a real sort of... um a real rebel without a cause. And my, my, my thing was just, I don't want, um, I'd rather have no friends than to have crappy friends. So mm. with that, um, I remember this one time, uh, like you asked about whether I was creative or, or sort of expressive. Yeah. Um, I did have like these, this small group of guys in my, in my year eight class who were actually kind of, um, we, we did get along at least in class, but it was different, like outside at lunchtime or anything like that. Uh, I certainly never used to hang out with them there, but they all played guitar and one of them was a drummer. And mm. during music class, um, the teacher would split us up and they'd say like, the people who already play an instrument, I'll put you guys in this room and everyone else can stay in this room and we'll like learn how to play smoke on the water on an acoustic guitar. And I hated the idea of being stuck in this room with all these other people. So I used to lie and say that actually I know how to play bass. So let me go into this other room mm. and th- he would let me go in. And I, he always knew that I didn't play bass, but he would let me in because he saw that I was lonely and these were the only guys that kind of, uh, you know, had any patience to hang out with me. And, um, yeah, I, I would do that. And then one day he got really angry. He came into the, into the room and said, um, like I was being, a nuisance or something. He goes, so get out. I'm like, what? I'm not going to get out. Like, I play bass. Or, like, I'm supposed to be here. I was being really cheeky. And he goes, you don't mm. play bass. You're never going to play bass. Just get out of my classroom. Um, and I was incensed. I was so angry uh, yeah. at him saying that, that I actually told all of my friends to just give me money for my 15th birthday. Um, so I got like a total of like a hundred and eighty dollars and I had sixty dollars saved up and I went to this guitar store and I bought myself a bass guitar. Um, literally just to spite my teacher. Um yeah. and then that guitar became my best friend. That was I every single lunchtime I would go into the music room by myself to play bass. Um I would skip class yeah. all the time to to go and play <laughs> bass. Um that was my my like absolute passion at that age. Yeah, and do you think as well that um, that lash out against your teacher was a bit of a, a cumulative result of, I guess, all the bullying that you faced through your primary school as well? Was it just sort of um, a point where you were like, you know, I, I've got to do something? Um, yeah, do, do you, did you notice or looking back, do you feel like that might be true? I definitely feel like I created a persona and a, a, a personality of sass um, to mm-hmm. defend myself and I usually would get away with it because I would kind of um, I'd be able to say something witty that would kind of shut things down and when that didn't work yeah. um, 
and I, I kind of lost that interaction, I suppose. And I was, I was used to, to not losing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that it, it made me find another way to kind of, to win. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it was definitely, I mean, it was something that I developed as a, as a defense mechanism. My thing was, I was, I would always be wittier than the person who was coming after me because mm. you know, whenever I got bullied, I never had some, anything to say. So that's, that's sort of where it came from. Yeah. And what sort of role did, um, I guess music, I know you've, um, you've had a pretty big experience through music. It's had a big impact in your life. Um, what sort of role has it, has it played? Sorry. Yeah. So my, I, I did really bad in high school. Um, because my thing was like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be a rock star anyway. Uh, yeah. And when I was 17, I started um, really seriously trying to get um, into the music scene. And I, I was using this online forum called Mel Band at the time to find other musicians. And this one death metal band um, called My Burning Empire, they played like this deathcore kind of music, um, way heavier than anything that I actually ever really liked. We're looking for a bass player. Mm. Uh, so I auditioned and, and I, by that time I was starting to get pretty good because all I ever did was play bass. And I, I was obsessed with this other band called Dillinger Escape Plan that, um, they're like a really, really, uh, violent band on stage. They, they don't sit still. They just kind of go nuts yeah. and they're really energetic. And I wanted to be that. Um, and this was my outlet to do that. So yeah. interestingly, like they, they accepted me. And although I did, I definitely feel like I was, I was 17 and they were all about, uh, 34 and above, but they were really serious about playing music. And I was serious about it as well. So all, all of the money that I would get from my job at a department store, uh, I would feed it into this band, um, paying to tour, paying to, um, to record music, to buy new instruments, to buy new basses, uh, strings, like strings are so expensive. I, after every like two weeks, I'd have to spend $70 on a new set of strings at least. That was like not good enough. Um, and yeah. that was my absolute passion. Um, yeah, that's, and that, that was my first band. After that, I, I, I had a real disagreement with, um, with, with the drummer and I quit. There was this other band called The Roseline that, um, that were looking for a bass player, luckily enough. And I, I applied and they, they loved me. Um, yeah. but like, I probably haven't experienced as much racism as I ever had, like being in that band. Um, yeah, wow. But I still, I still loved it because this, this band was doing better than the previous one. Um, mm. so I, I, through this band, I started getting, by the time I joined it, I was 20. Yeah. Um, I was touring all up and down the East Coast. Uh, we went to like all of the capital cities, less, um, Canberra and Darwin to play. We, uh, got invited to go to the United States to record, uh, record with Tom Denny, who's, the guitarist and producer for a day to remember one of the biggest sort of metalcore bands in the world cool um we went we recorded with them and when we came back we got signed to a record label called new justice records in sydney and we kept touring and yeah for about six years and maybe forty thousand dollars i um i lived that sort of uh lifestyle of a musician that was trying to be professional Awesome. And, and so what about, um, cause you said that was, you know, in your twenties and I guess six years since then, um, what about, um, university? I, I know you did go to university. How did that sort of fit in 
and where did that come in? Yeah, so the tricky thing is when I finished high school, I had an enter score, which I think they call them ATARs now, of yeah. 52. Um, it wasn't enough to get into any university in metropolitan Melbourne. Uh, yeah. So I had to go into TAFE and I hated it. Uh, the thing was like, I, I finished high school and I was, I had this idea that I'm a total idiot. I'm just a dumb person, but I'm yeah. really good at playing bass. Uh, when I got into TAFE, uh, to study advertising, I kind of, it was a space that I realized that, um, maybe I'm not as dumb as I thought. Because mm-hmm. I was I was meeting all these other people who were really struggling with the material, whereas this was it was just too easy for me. Yeah, um, and it that kind of inspired me, I suppose, to be uh, more dedicated to to the things that I was doing at TAFE than before, uh, but not still not to like any. I wasn't passionate about advertising, to be honest. I I kind yeah. of hated it, um, but I did really well, so I got this high distinction. Um, average and you know the, when I was in year 12 and I just finished I, I applied for the universities and was obviously rejected so when I finished my TAFE degree I, I applied for um, some universities and I was rejected again and that that was my heart absolutely sank I just, yeah, yeah it, it felt like I was um, all my worst fears were vindicated that actually I am an idiot that actually I'm not going to go to university and by this point as well, I was starting to realize that life as a musician um, wasn't sustainable. Um, I, I never got paid enough for the for what I was doing. Mind you, sometimes we were playing shows and we'd get paid $2,000, but it was yeah. cost $2,000 to drive up there. Mm. And I, it was at this point where I was realizing, like, I don't want to be a musician as my job. Um, I want to go to university. And so I applied for university and was rejected. And I was absolutely despondent and my mother um was really really pressuring me like just call one of the universities call them and, and ask them like why didn't get in and i was like no mom like that's i'm just gonna get the standard response she goes you never know just give them a call you they might tell you something yeah um i called and it turns out that they never received my marks from when i went to tape okay. and i was I was really confused about that. I was like, why didn't that happen? Like, I call up the tech and they said, absolutely, we couldn't do that because you failed one of your subjects. And I was looking at my marks and I was like, no, I, I didn't fail any of my subjects. What is <laughs> yeah. this? Uh, it turns out that one of the teachers I had this really big disagreement with because I, I've got a lot of tattoos and one of my tattoos is on the back of my neck. Yeah. And when I walk into this room, this, this one teacher said to me, um, why did you have a tattoo on the back of your neck where you can't see it? You're just doing that so other people can see it. And I, I responded really, really, really rudely, essentially. And yeah. I told him where he could go and that I didn't care what he thought of me and that he had no right to talk to me about that. And he actually ended up failing me on that course, um, despite the fact that I, I did everything and I had my mark. So I had to yeah. go back to the tape. And by this time, instead of despondency, I was incensed i was furious and i went back and i i basically challenged them on it and the faculty agreed with me and they gave me my art and yeah. then i decided okay you give me this and i'm going to, to apply to universities directly so i didn't do the the decal thing that, that yeah. people were doing and um at this point i was selling furniture that was my job um on the side of being a, a, a musician and i hated it um mm. And I remember being, it was one month before 
I was going to go to the United States to record my album. And I was going home on the train and I received this email. I opened up my phone and it says, you've been accepted into Monash University Bachelor of Journalism. Um, yeah. And so that was sort of my transition to there. And, and from the moment that I had that, that I was in university, I like my entire work ethic changed. Like I had mm. finally been given this opportunity to step out of um, how I thought of myself as a, as a dumb person, as someone who's only good to play music. This was yeah. my opportunity now to actually excel, to be the type of person that I admire. And yeah. I've never let it go since then. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And um, I guess how it's really interesting to see, um, you know, the, the journey that you've come through because I, for one as well, um, have had no idea about any of this. So it's really interesting to listen in about. But really transitioning from where you come from and in towards working in social change, particularly towards um, girls and women's rights, um, you know, in a community role that you do have. When did you develop an interest? When did you realize, I guess, that that's sort of the work that you wanted to do and you wanted to go into? Yeah. So when I got into university, my thing was I want to be a journalist and I want to be a foreign correspondent. I, I'm always, yeah. I've always been attracted to things that are international. Myself being a displaced person, like a displaced identity as a, as a migrant here who's, you know, at the same time, not quite a Venezuelan enough for the Venezuelans and not quite Australian enough for the Australians. Uh, I've always been attracted to this kind of international, global look at things. Uh, and yeah. really early on, I realized that I didn't care too much about journalism. But I did care about writing uh, about human rights. So I was doing human rights, and that was my, my double major. Um, and I had this, this one trans friend online uh, who would always have fights with me about what trans, um, you know, politics yeah. were like what what gender identity is and all this stuff and i honestly had no idea what any of it was and in my first uh, year of study i on a whim just to understand my friend i decided to take this unit at monash university called sex knowledge and gender yeah and it was in the first uh the first lecture that i heard uh gender is a social construction and then suddenly everything made sense to me like and, and i thought i am way too old right now, I'm 21, to be hearing that sex is a social construct, uh, sorry, that gender is a social construct for the first yeah. time. And that's where I got the, I, I started to get really passionate about human rights from a gender lens. Yeah. Um, and that's where I started to discover feminism, um, intersectionality, how race fits into all of it, how ability fits into all of it. Um, for sure. I was able to look back a lot on what I was like in high school. I've always been a very androgynous person in high school. Like I, yeah. Any chance to wear makeup, I, I love it. I love clothing. I, all those things that are feminine coded, hmm. I would do a lot of. Um, and, you know, studying gender and studying masculinity, I really started to discover it. Um, and it was when I left uh, my undergraduate, I started working for a magazine called Young Vagabond. Um, and they were running workshops in high school talking about the construction of masculinity with young men. Yeah. And that was where I developed a really strong passion for um, working with young people to discuss gender, to, to, you know, empower them to understand things before I understood it. Yeah. Um, so that they don't have to be 21, go to university and discover something integral about themselves. 
For sure. And I, and I guess you've kind of touched on it already, but um, I really did want to delve into challenging and realizing um, that gender is a social construct. And obviously, along with that comes masculinity and femininity. Um, but rooted within that is vulnerability mm-hmm. in, able to, in being able to identify and challenge those, um, those ideals. And so what, how important is vulnerability, in particular with um, young men, because I know um, a lot of us think that it's a very feminine trait, um, but I think you've had a bit of a different experience around mm. that. Yeah, well, I, I'll take you to what I used to do in the workshop. So, so one of the things that I would do in the workshop is that I, I'd explain what the gender binary is. And I'd show them how on one side you have um, courageous and on the other side you'd have uh, cowardly. And on the one side you'd have, um, you know, rational and the other one irrational. And then there's good and there's bad. These are all opposites. And then there's male and there's feminine. They're all opposites. But actually, if you look at all these things that are yeah. coded as good, they're also coded as male. And all these things that are coded as bad are also coded as female. Um and so I, I would sort of leave that and then we'd go in through this big, I'd facilitate a discussion where we spoke about the people who really inspired us. And we'd get people talking, yeah. you know, the, the obvious names would come up, Barack Obama, um, Nelson Mandela, but also heaps of young men really are, are very inspired by Julia Gillard. Um, they, I, w- I wouldn't, they I would, wouldn't have picked that to be honest. No, neither. Um, by yeah. this point, uh, Orange is the New Black was starting to sort of come through and people were saying LeBron mm. Uh People were saying Beyonce. Young men are inspired by Beyonce. Uh, <clears throat> and what I do is, is sort of ask them, what, what are these, what traits do these people have that make them, uh, give them the ability, I suppose, to, to be where they are? And they would say the obvious things, like they have, they're courageous and they're perseverant. Um, yeah. But they'd also say things like they have a lot of empathy, that they're, uh, they're very kind people, that they're able to put themselves in, in the shoes of other people and decide, I don't want that to happen for you, so I'm going to help you change it. Um, and I, I do the thing where I'd write all those things mm. on the board, um, but sneakily without trying the binary, I'd put them, I'd group them together. And then I'd put the binary up and, I, and I'd go, well, we've been through all of this and we've realized that actually when we are socialized and told that this is what it means to be a man. We're doing with the opposition and cutting out all these things yeah. that are actually integral to being like anyone that you aspire to be like. Uh, and when I sort of show them that, the penny would drop and they'd realize, wow, all these things that are feminine coded that can actually be very powerful. And I think you can't get to that point without being willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. Because that means that you need to accept that you were incorrect. And from that very, from without even that, you can't change your mind. So vulnerability is kind of like at the very root of being able to yeah. uh, see the world in a different way. And so when, when you can accept that, there's all sorts of things that happen in your life when you're able to be vulnerable. You discover that other people's vulnerabilities yeah. um, can be a really powerful thing. Yeah. And that when the both of you are vulnerable, you can actually be quite honest. Um, when you're honest, you can actually get things out that maybe you didn't even realize. A lot of the things is I, I discover things talking to friends uh, about myself. And I, I work through ideas by being able to speak to other people. Uh, and I think that's just the fact that we're social. We're social beings. Um, so with that vulnerability, we're kind of putting up a firewall 
to the ideas that even we can think about ourselves. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think that's um, some very good points. And I particularly resonated with, um, I guess, those ideas, you know, when you when you look at people that you look up to, um, you know, em- the, the values of like empathy, kindness, a lot of those things that are very powerful, but also come across as very, um, I guess, feminine as well, in a way, um, are some of the most important factors in addressing a lot of um, a lot of issues and actually making a change in both ourselves and in making positive change with a lot of issues um, out there. Um, and so on that as well, uh, so I guess a big question a lot of people have asked me is, uh, you know, how can we actually as young people be effective advocates um, for social change? And, you know, how might we find the issues we really want to advocate on because there are so many out there? Hmm. So the first thing I think is... Um being very honest and true to yourself and being honest about what it is that uh, you care about. There's a lot of people who have um, very differing ideas about what's the most important thing to tackle. Mm. If you look at it on a very sort of numbers base, it, it would be global poverty and hunger. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's not what particularly is important to you. Maybe that's not what's going to particularly inspire you. But, and at the same time, that's, there still needs to be someone who's going to work on uh, feminism, who's still going to work on masculinities, who's still going to work on trans issues, who's still going to work on disability. So it's, it's about picking the things that are most important to you and then realizing that um, I think personally it, it's not enough to vote. Uh, so if, if that really matters to you, um, yeah, into, look into organizing with someone else. Look at who else is... If there is an organization, look if there is actually someone who's doing that kind of work, read up on it and just like, just let that interest kind of grow. Don't force yeah. anything. Don't, don't feel like you have to volunteer anything. Just let that interest grow because at the end of the day, you'll only ever be able to do what you're interested in doing because that will drive you. So don't, don't bother doing things that are, you know, too much for you. Yeah, for sure. And I guess how do we, um, what are ways that we can as individuals broaden our perspectives to understand issues on a deeper level um, to be able to really figure out whether that's, you know, the sort of thing we want to wake up and work on every day rather than just something we care about on a broader sense? Hmm. Um, personally for me, I had an immense privilege and access to university. And university yeah. has been really, really, really helpful for me to develop a lot of these ideas. Um, but not everyone has that access. And actually, I think that one of the, one of the best things about this generation that's coming through, you know, the generation of my brother who's 10 years younger than me is that through the internet, there's immense amount of online communities, uh, where people are consistently having these discussions that, uh, talk about all these things in a very accessible way. Um, I honestly think that. Uh, for all the flack that Tumblr gets, um, Tumblr has been a space for queer politics to develop and yeah. for queer identities to develop. And that's one of the most amazing things about the internet. People who are invisible in real life because, you know, it's, it's dangerous to express your gender and your identity in such a way don't have to be invisible online. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Look, Looking for that spa- the spaces online, reading uh, is incredible. 
that and also just don't expect you know that you can ask someone a question that they're going to answer you the question like do your own research is, is yeah. number one sort of thing yeah definitely um and i also know that um i guess apart from your work at plan you've also been quite involved um working and looking at and studying democracy um why don't we you i guess talk us through the basis of what um the sort of work you've done around that area sure so i'm the head of advocacy for an organization called uh the venezuelan australian democratic council the vadc uh essentially venezuela has gone through a process uh that academics call democratic backsliding and Venezuela, to give it a little bit of context, we had a very popular leader um, called Hugo Chavez, who won, uh, who, he came in with a lot of populist sort of energy. He inspired the lower classes of um, Venezuela in a way that they hadn't been inspired for ever, Mm. essentially. And he came in with these immense personal charm and charisma um, like most populist leaders do. Uh, yeah. But he came at it from a, this very left-wing sort of uh, political stance. So his government has been called very feminist. Um, his yeah. government has been said to be, um, to have reached the a highest normative ceiling for indigenous rights. Uh, that's a huge claim. Yeah, wow. Um, but at the same time, Venezuela, if you look at it now, is completely destroyed uh, economically. Uh, its entire ability to produce oil, which is the only thing that kept it afloat during the Chavez years, has been completely destroyed um, and run into the ground. And honestly, because of Chavez and his progenitors, Venezuela at the moment is in a state of extreme crisis. And I could, I can very easily see if, if the situation keeps getting as bad as it is, a refugee crisis there as big as what we have seen in Syria. Um, by the proportion of, of Venezuelan po- uh, population, um, yeah, it has the potential to destabilize the, the Latin American um, global community immensely. So I essentially have been working to organize other Venezuelans who live in Australia that care about this. Um, and the, the people of extreme varying backgrounds, I, I personally um, openly identify as a Marxist. I very yeah. much although I don't agree with much of um, the way Chavez did things. Uh, and some of those people that I work with are, are very right-wing people. But what we do have in common is that we all care about um, Venezuela's strength of democracy. Mm. So to go back to what I was talking about with the democratic backsliding, what Chavez had, has done is, or, or did, he's dead now, was to uh, stack the courts in his favor. Uh, also to stack the electoral commission in his favor, also to stack, um, you know, all the, the governances in his favor. So, like, he's a military man, and what he did was that he put in lots of ge- generals, and he got the support of the military behind him, and he yeah. essentially weakened all of Venezuela's democratic institutions in a legal way. So it's, it's, it's actually quite difficult to challenge and call him a dictator because he wasn't. What he did was he found um, legal methods to flip things in his favor, and now he's in quite authori- uh, Venezuela's quite an authoritarian space, but because it's gone that way. So what I have been doing is organizing Venezuelans uh, in Australia that care about 
the fact that Venezuela's democracy has has slid into that direction uh, and to leverage the power that Australia has in that regard. So Australia, for instance, uh, doesn't care too much about Latin America. They're not a strategic partner. They're not a neighbor of ours. Um, so in that sense, it's difficult for it's been difficult for us to influence the Australian government. Nevertheless, yeah. what we do is we, we look at, like, the Australian government recently just won a seat on the, Hu- the UN Human Rights Council. So we did yeah. things like their election platform, and we, we saw that their pillars uh, of policy were gender, uh, strong democratic institutions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the crisis that's going on in Venezuela is highly gendered. The crisis going on in Venezuela at the moment is because of weakening democratic institutions. And the instability is contagious. Mm. So when that refugee crisis continues to amplify, Colombia is going to have big problems. Brazil is going to have big problems. Peru. These are all people who deal with us. Definitely. What we do is we we write letters to politicians asking if they would please um, respond to us or give us 15 minutes of their time. I meet with them and I, I tell them, what I believe is happening in Venezuela, what what I believe the solutions are, and I ask them to write to Julie Bishop, as a Minister of Foreign, for Foreign Affairs, to essentially use her platform at the Human Rights Council uh, to support other voices that are uh, condemning um, the fraudulent election that Venezuela is yeah. doing at the moment, that type of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, that sort of very much leads into what I wanted to ask you about next, um, which is... Around you know how to really best involve uh, minority and uh, diverse perspectives in the process of trying to develop an effective democracy. Um, so I guess the first thing would be you know what does an effective democracy look like? And as you've already started to touch on, you know what's the best way for minority um, minorities to really get involved so we do have that diversity of perspectives in that process. Sure. So as far as like uh, democratic setups. I believe in proportional governments. Uh, so quite the way yeah. that a lot of the Nordic countries work and our Senate, if you win 4% of the vote, then you get 4% of the seats, essentially. Uh, yeah. And this is really good for stopping uh, two-party systems. Um, mm-hmm. It's really good for including many different voices. Um, so that that's that's like an institutional answer. Yeah. But also when it, one of your points was how do we include minorities and whatnot um it needs to be the the case that you center their voices to begin with you need to center a a minority's voice so for instance i will um, i'm often asked to talk about what it's like to be a person of color in australia um but i'm also a cisgendered heterosexual man i I much rather when they ask me what's it like to be a person of color in this country uh, go to one of my trans uh, queer trans people of color uh, friends uh, and ask them to would you like this space uh, that's one thing to center their voices the other thing is that if you're if you have your own organization and uh, you realize that you have a, a bit of a problem in that uh, you're too white or you know there's only cis women or, or whatever it may be it's not enough to get one person uh hired into the group to represent that voice. It's also not enough to get two. It might be enough uh, to do things correctly to get three, as in you're less likely to make a mistake in your media team if you have three people um, of a specific minority. 
But actually, you need to conscientiously foster diversity within your team. And it, it's, it's not just a political yeah. thing. It's not just a political thing, although that has immense value. Every single study that you read out there from a, a HR organization shows that diverse teams are more effective. They're more profitable. They have a wider pool of ideas to, to pull from. And you're much less likely to make dumb mistakes like, you know, the ones that we see all the time in Australian politics. Yeah, for sure. No, I 100% agree with that. Um, and I guess just, just to, in closing up as well, um, Saola, I think the stuff you've gone through has been super interesting and very relevant to um, a lot of people who'd be listening in. Um, I guess what's next for you? Um, what's next for, I guess, you know, your work with Plan and um, anything else you you, I guess, you want to achieve? Yeah. So with Plan, I absolutely adore Plan. Plan has been my favorite job that I've ever had. Um, I am starting this year with a really strong group of youth activist leaders. They're one of the strongest groups of young women that I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thing's going to be making sure that they have all the opportunities that plan can give them uh, to essentially make sure that they're the leaders and they're our voice for this year. Yeah. Uh, there's that. Uh, for the Venezuelan Australian Democratic Council, um, I really want to start to forge some strong relationships uh, with people who work at DFAT, the Department for Foreign Affairs and Trade, um, so that when they when they are going to the Human Rights Council, when they are engaging in, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership deals that they've brought back, um, yeah, they know that they can come to a community group that is Venezuelan and have them uh, sort of influence or, or at least just ask us. Uh, the, this government through Julie Bishop, has actually been uh, rather good at growing the capacity of including community groups. Um, yeah. And I, I want our group to be there. I want Venezuelans, despite the fact that we're very, a very small community, um, to be one that's highly regarded in Australia for being able to, to provide good advocacy. Yeah. No, that sounds amazing. And I think you'll definitely seems like you're on a very good path towards achieving all of that. So I wish you all the best. And again, I want to thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening in. I do want to ask you to please leave a review for this podcast. Um, One, it really helps with being more visible on people's feeds and whatever podcasting apps they use so more people can benefit from the discussions we have. And also... Let me know what you think, like whether the stuff that we talk about is actually helping you and if there's any other topics you want to hear about or any sort of people you want to hear from. Thanks for listening and hope you guys have a good week ahead.